0: My name is uh, Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills. And uh, on behalf of Pastor Gary, who is um, not with us this morning, uh, and myself and the rest of the staff and the elders, we want to welcome you again to West Hills, especially if you're new or newer. It's really great to have you here. Um, Speaking of Pastor Gary, he is, as most of you know probably, in his favorite place in the world right now, and I am actually going to be replacing him um, up there Uh, or making my way towards doing that at least in the next uh, 45 minutes or so. So we should be, let's get going Um, because the beach calls. So um, about a month ago, uh, our oven stopped working at home and um, we had a guy come out and tell us, uh, I can fix it for you for 200 bucks, the igniter's broken. I went on. Amazon and found the part for twenty five bucks, and found a three minute YouTube video uh, teaching me how to do it. And I thought, well, I'll save the two hundred bucks. Now, I'm handy. I'm not handy. Sorry. I have the word "not" there, and I know this about myself. I'm not handy. I'm not very handy. I want to be. I want to think that I am, but I'm not. And but, I am pretty good at following instructions, and so I followed the video to a T. Uh, this YouTube video, I pulled the oven out, I took the door off, I took the racks out, unscrewed the drip pan, um, unscrewed the old igniter, uh, re-screwed in, the n- installed the new igniter, replaced everything, whole thing took me less than half an hour, saved 200 bucks, fired it up, voila, it's preheating, we're good. I was, felt really accomplished um, until the next night, um, Polly was making brownies for the youth group and we smelt this, like, chemically smell. And then we started to see a lot of smoke come out of the oven. And, uh, you know, we're Googling it, you know, what's going on. Um, We, uh, I I thought, you know, probably just needs to kind of burn off the plastic coating or something like that. Um, So, side note, if any of the students in the youth group drop dead in the next couple days, you can't prove anything. I've thrown away the evidence. Uh, but speaking of that, uh, the next night, tried to cook something for Ellery, and it happened again. We're not going to feed our own daughter chemicals, so um, <laughs> shut it down, pull, let it cool down, pulled the, the oven out, unscrewed everything again, and lo and behold, um, lying there on the burner, melted to the burner, uh, was, anyone want to guess? The old igniter, yeah. Yeah. Um, So in my defense, the video did not specify that you should take that out and throw that away. So if anything, I would say I follow the directions too well. Uh, But the point of the story is when we don't know what the heck we're doing, it's really good to have a model. And I want to suggest to you this morning that when it comes to prayer, communicating with God that oftentimes we don't know what the heck we're doing, and we need a model. And I would direct you to the New Testament as proof of that. In Romans 8.26, Paul tells us, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself has interceded for us. And so part of the way that the Spirit does that is by giving us biblical models to follow from God's Word, to teach us and train us, Uh, and disciple us in how to pray. And so Jesus himself does that. Jesus himself implicitly tells us, you don't know how, how, how you need to pray, so let me tell you. When you pray, here's how you ought to pray in Matthew 6, 9, the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't say pray this. It's not a ritualistic, rigid formula, but he says pray like this, and he gives us a model to learn from. And, and we unpacked Jesus's model in a four-part four mini-sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, actually this time last year, uh, that I would encourage you to revisit on our sermon archives of our, of our website. But since I think we can benefit from all of the biblical instruction and guidance that, and help that we can get, this morning I want to show you why I think that Nehemiah's prayer in the opening chapter of his book that we're starting together this morning serves as one of the best models, not only in the Old Testament, but in all of Scripture for us. And so if you would, um, out of respect for the reading of God's Word, if you would stand with me, uh, we've got the words on the screen, if you want to follow along, we're in Nehemiah 1 in your Bibles, I'll read it out loud for us, and as I said, please follow along with me. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcast are in the uttermost uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name great and dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are so worthy this morning of our devotion, our time, our attention, our study, our pursuit, of our prayer. And so we confess to you this morning, like Nehemiah, like Paul, that we do not pray as we ought to. And yet, Father, we desire to. We desire to be taught how. And so would you now open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, and touch our hearts hearts through the power of your word and the illumination of your Holy Spirit, so that you might transform the way that we pray and communicate with you for our good and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. All God's people agree, I us say, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, uh, before we dive right in, uh, let's quickly just give some historical context to the book of Nehemiah in, in the bigger picture of God's overarching story of redemption in the Bible. So um, I don't know if you can see, it's going to be kind of small print, uh, but if you've got laser vision, um, you can see the, the books of the Bible down at the bottom and then some of the um, themes and, and titles of, of ages there at the top. I'll just run through this very quickly. Um, prehistory, creation, Adam and Eve. Eat the apple. Sin enters the world, the fall. Sin continues. Noah's Ark. God decides to start over the flood, Genesis 6 through 9. This is all kind of prehistory. I'll let you guys argue over the dates. Uh, Around the year 2000, though, uh, God calls a guy named Abraham and makes a covenant with him to give him a promised land for his numerous descendants. And that begins this period known as the patriarchs. Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, aka Israel, and then his son Joseph, whose 11 brothers, hence the 12 tribes of Israel, get jealous of his awesome colorful coat and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And after a famine relocates, the whole rest of the family there and many generations later under a new pharaoh who's paranoid of all these Israelites who are doing so awesome in Egypt and flourishing, he enslaves them for a few hundred years. And the Israelites ultimately have to be led out of slavery in Egypt by Charleston Heston, a.k.a. Moses. <laughs> Moses in the year 1446 B.C. And God gives them the Ten Commandments and the law, which they immediately break so badly and so many times that God makes them wander around the wilderness for 40 years to let that entire generation die off. Before they can, he can ultimately lead them back into the Promised Land in the year 1406, only to see Israel slowly and steadily slide back into idolatry and lawlessness over the next 350 years, known as the period of the judges. So much so that by the year 1050, Israel has even rejected God himself as their king, as his, their king and they demand a human king like the other nations. And so they get King Saul, um, who is not All that bad at the start until uh, he gets really jealous of David. And he disobeys God, though, and the kingship is torn from him and given to David. And David is as good a king as it gets, and he is a vengeful, adulterous murderer. Uh, And so just over a century later, the kingdom is split again, this time in two, after the death of David's son Solomon in the year 930 B.C., and Israel becomes two kingdoms, the northern kingdom— known as Israel, whose next 19 kings for the next 200 years go from bad to worse so that God eventually lets them be judged by the nation of Assyria in the year 722 B.C. and destroyed and taken into exile. And then there's the southern kingdom, who who managed to only have 12 evil kings out of 19. And so uh, they managed to hold out until the year 586 B.C., when they are judged and destroyed and exiled by the Babylonians. And so for the next 50 years, roughly one quarter of Judah's entire population would remain in exile in Babylon until Babylon itself would be overthrown by the Persians in the year 536 uh, B.C., at which time Persia, uh, that, that overthrows Babylon, starts sending the Judeans, the now called Jews, uh, back to their homeland in Jerusalem. We don't know what to do with all you guys, just go home. And in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which in, originally in the Hebrew text was just one book, now we have two separate books in our, in our canon of Scripture, um, one single account we hear of three notable leaders of this rebuilding effort in Jerusalem. The first is Zerubbabel, one of the awesomest names in the Bible, um, who leads the rebuilding of the temple completed in the year 516, the first wave of migration back. The second is Ezra, a priest and teacher who returns in 458 B.C. to lead the rebuilding of the people themselves and to to remind them of the law that they've forgotten and rejected and to call them back to repentance and obedience. And finally, the third wave, Nehemiah, who's going to return in the year 445 B.C. and rebuild Jerusalem's city walls. And even though Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi all appear after the book of Nehemiah in the canon of Scripture and on your timeline there, chronologically, Nehemiah is arguably the last book written in the Old Testament, the last thing we hear from God before 400 years of virtual silence from God leading up to the birth of Jesus. And so this is a really important book, not just thematically, but but historically in the story of Scripture. And so enter into that context, Nehemiah 1. And let's read it again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, that is, the spring of the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia. So this is the spring of 445 BC. As Nehemiah was in, the, in Susa, the citadel or the capital, Susa was 225 miles east of, of Babylon. So this is modern day Iran, a long way from Jerusalem, a thousand miles. It happened that Hananiah. and I, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Now, understand that Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. Uh, he, he's never been to his, his family's homeland. Babylon is all he's ever known and he has got it good there. He tells us in verse 11, I was a cupbearer to the king. That means he was one of the king's most trusted servants whose only job was to taste test the finest wines of the king's cellar to make sure that they hadn't been poisoned. This was a cushy, it's not even a nine to five job. This is like a four to five sip wine with the king for an hour a day, all the benefits that come with palace living. Like he has got it good. And yet, Nehemiah remembers, and that's a word that you need to, that we need to remember as we study the book of Nehemiah. We're going to come back to that a lot. He remembers from literally a thousand miles away, Jerusalem, his family's homeland, God's own homeland, God's dwelling place amongst his people in the newly rebuilt temple, and Nehemiah shows a greater concern for the things of God than for his own cushy lifestyle. And what does he ask in verse three? They said to me, the remnant there in the province in Jerusalem had survived the exile and is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, without getting too political, please don't start chanting, build the wall or make Jerusalem great again. Um, Let's just say that in ancient times, building walls around your territory was really, really important. Uh, Think like the the Great Wall of China. Every major empire in this day and age fortified their cities with walls. It's just what you did because at any given time there was a handful of other growing rival nations that would otherwise be really happy to just come in and forcibly take your land, your resources, your women and children as slaves. I mean, it's just the world they lived in. And so having no walls around a city made its inhabitants incredibly vulnerable. And this newly rebuilt temple of God, God's own house where his presence lived, vulnerable. And so when Hanani reports that the walls are destroyed, he's not just referring to the destruction by the Babylonians 150 years ago. Nehemiah, of course, knew about that. What he's referring to is actually the rebuilding effort of the city walls that we hear about in the book of Ezra in chapter 4. This had been Restarted, resumed um, under Zerubbabel when he goes back. We're not going to read the whole um, chapter of Ezra 4, but look at it later. Basically, there were some neighboring adversaries of Judah who rather liked the idea of a Jerusalem without walls that made it vulnerable for attack in the future. And so they write a letter to King Artaxerxes alleging that if he allows the Jews to continue rebuilding the walls, they will rebel and they'll quit paying taxes. And eventually Artaxerxes is gonna have to come back in and reconquer them all over again. And so Artaxerxes, he is persuaded and he signs a decree ordering that the Jews cease construction on their walls. Temple's already built, but stop the walls, city walls. Now, in chapter 2 next week of Nehemiah, we're going to see Nehemiah actually leverage his influence with the king as his trusted cupbearer. The same Artaxerxes, he's going to risk not only his cushy job, but his life to go out on a limb and ask the king to re-reverse his decree and let Nehemiah go back home and lead a resumed rebuilding effort on the city walls in Jerusalem. But before he does that, long before he does that, because look at, at me with, at how chapter two opens. This is chapter two, verse one, in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Chapter one opened in the month of Kislev in the spring. Chapter two opens in Nisan, the fall. This is four to five months later. Four to five months What does Nehemiah do for four to five months before he ever broaches a conversation with the king? What does he do? He prays. Read verse four. I sat down and wept and mourned for days and days and days and days and continued fasting and praying. Now, he probably doesn't fast for the whole four to five months, hopefully, but he prays. And so I want to ask us this morning, as we get into our outline now, how many of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, would say that prayer is usually our last resort? I mean, I, I mean just, let's can we be so honest? I'm going to be really honest with y'all this morning. I would raise my hand and say, prayer is usually my last resort. That's me. Like when, when I've exhausted all other options and God has finally brought me to my knees and there's nowhere to look but up, I will turn to him in prayer, but not a moment sooner. <laughs> That's kind of my sin struggle with prayer. And some of, some of us have the opposite problem. Some of us, all we do is pray. All you ever do is pray, and you don't listen to what God's trying to say back to you through your prayers to move you to get off your knees and go do something about it yourself. So there's, there's a reciprocal thing. There's a, there's a tension. There's a balance here with prayer and action. We're trying to strike this balance. Nehemiah teaches us that prayer should be our first resort, not our last resort, our first response. And yet, it's not our only resort. I mean, Nehemiah's got to get off his knees in chapters 2 through 6 and build a wall. That is God. what God tells him through five months of prayer. But before he does that, he prays. Prayer is his response. And so that's the R in our, in our outline. Prayer should be responsive it should be our first response. So we ask ourselves this morning when I'm confronted with a problem, is it my first response to run and hide? To say, uh uh-uh, uh, that's not my problem? Bad response. To rush in and fix it? Better response. Or to pause and to bring it to the Lord in prayer and say, God, You are needed in this situation more than me. Would you direct my footsteps as to whether and where and how and why you want me to get involved? That's the best response. And Nehemiah's prayer here, it's actually responsive to God in a second way too. Uh, Prayer is his first response, yes. But if we look at the actual content of Nehemiah's prayer... It also reveals a kind of responsiveness that we need to see. The content of his prayer responds in real time to a real-life need and situation. Nehemiah's conversations with God, as we're going to see in the chapters to come as well, they aren't compartmentalized, quiet time rituals that are divorced from the real stuff of life. And again, I don't want to speak for you. I'll just speak for me personally. That, I think, is the source of a lot of my struggle with prayer in my prayer life. Is that we we think of prayer in terms of requests, we think of prayer in terms of lists. And if I had a nickel for every time I said, I'll be praying for you about that, I'd be a rich man. But if I had a nickel for every time I followed up and did it, I wouldn't. I'm just going to be really honest with you this morning. We do it for 20 seconds before each meal, for five minutes when we hit the pillow at night, and if we're really Christian, for 10 or 15 minutes during our quiet time in the morning to start the day. But it's a list, it's a ritual, and I'm not saying that lists and rituals are inherently sinful and don't have their place, I'm just saying that's a very different model than what we see here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't get this grim report of the inhabitants in Judah and say, okay, Hold on. Let me just add that to my prayer list in my notes app here. And I will try and remember to pray for that the next couple days until it gets replaced on this list by the barrage of requests in my life group on Tuesday night. That's not what he does. He doesn't have to be reminded. He doesn't have to revisit this because it's a heart thing for him. He has broken as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. He's, he's desperate. It commands his heart's attention. And this is a pattern for prayer that he, like I said, is going to display all throughout the rest of the book. Chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, we see him praying over and over again. I'm not going to go through them for sake of time, but I've got them on, on, the, on the screen there. Time and time again. He is just naturally responding to real life situations. People criticize him. Hey, we're going to come and tear down this wall if you build it. And he prays, God, give me the strength, steady my hands. And then he acts and he tells people to grab their swords. So there's prayer and action. But he lives his life in constant responsive conversation with God. And so here's the takeaway for number one for me. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, this needs to be your model. I'm not prescribing this for anybody else. I'm just telling you personally, for me, I'm going to be moving away from a prayer list model. Because more often than not, I I just, I forget and I neglect. And even when I do revisit my list, a lot of times my prayer feels forced. It feels arbitrary it feels insincere, and so I want my prayer to be a matter of the heart, like it was for Nehemiah. And so again, not for you necessarily, but for me, I want to pray in real time responsively, as God is putting things on my heart. And so I'm going to ask you to hold me accountable, actually. When you bring requests, needs to me, don't let me tell you I will be praying for you about that ask me, would you ask me, it'll be uncomfortable and awkward if I don't get good at this pretty quickly, but would you ask me, will you pray for me right now? Like as I'm telling you, as it's hitting your heart and as you're hearing it and and hopefully responding on an emotional level, would you pray for me right now? And then my prayer for me is that that will naturally begin a habit in my heart of when I hear things, taking them to the Lord in prayer first, that it would be my first response. And that as I do that, it's going to develop within me a habit of prayer whereby God is naturally then bringing those requests back to my heart, back to my mind in the days and the weeks to come. And then I'm following up with you. And I am praying over it, not just one time, but I'm I'm praying because, because my heart breaks for the things that break your heart, for the things that break God's heart. I want to live a life of prayer with God. Uh, number two is our prayer should be adoring. Now we're getting into the ACTS model of praying, A-C-T-S. For those of you who are familiar with that model, I ruined the acronym with the R. RAX is not a word, I apologize. Um, but I thought the responsive thing was too good there not to include it. But A stands for adoration. Prayer should be adoring. Look at how Nehemiah starts his prayer. In verse five, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Our prayer ought to begin with a sincere, profound, personal, emotional recognition of how utterly awesome God is. Literally, awe-inducing, inspiring, and overwhelming feeling of reverence and admiration fear how awesome our God is, this God who with a mere word created the entire known universe, the universe we don't even know. We have only begun to discover, and as we learned in Second Peter this last month, with less than a word, we'll dissolve it all again. That God is the one we're talking to, and he's actually listening, and he cares. That is crazy. That should cause us to Just pause for a moment before we rush through our prayers. That should stop us dead in our tracks from time to time. In fact, I would go so far as to say there should probably be some times that we sit down to have quiet time with God and to pray, to bring things before God. And we just get caught up reflecting on the nature of what it is that we're doing and who it is that we're talking to. And we never actually get to the things that we sat down to pray about because we're so overwhelmed and floored by the majesty of God and by the blessing that prayer is. That should happen from time to time for us. But I'll tell you that I think that this is another area where, in my experience, we really sometimes struggle to pray as we ought. In fact, I would say of of all five characteristics of prayer, that we're going to examine, I think that this one might be the one that we neglect the most sometimes. And I'll just pick on my own life group for a minute because that's what you get when you sign up to be in the pastor's life group. Um, We had, there was a night after Gary preached, I think it was on Psalm 135. So this was actually two years ago. So I'm safe because most of the life group wasn't even in the life group then two years ago, Psalm 135, um, and praising the name of the Lord. And I thought, you know, rather than discuss praising the name of the Lord tonight, we're just going to do it together, you know. And so I I teed them up for this. I told them, we're not going to do discussion, we're just going to pray tonight. And every other week, you know, we bring our prayer request before each other, and we we pray for one another, what's on our hearts, and that's great, and we should do that. Um, But I said, this evening, can we just spend 45 minutes praising God together in prayer? Just adoring God, adoration. And I will tell you, it was really rough. And I had to go back to him later, because it's a discipleship opportunity for, as, as a leader, and, and say, guys, how did that go? What did y'all think? And we talked about it. We really struggled with that, didn't we? Uh, we were kind of all over the place, praying for the neighbor's cat and Meemaw's cancer. and I mean, those are good things, but like, we had specifically said, this is what we want to do with this prayer. We just want to focus on God and just thank him for who he is. And we struggled with that. And, and again, God wants our prayers to be sincere and to come from our heart. And so when things come to our heart and our minds, let's bring them to the Lord. But what does it say about our hearts when we can't manage to focus them on God for a mere five minutes, much less 50 minutes? What does that say about our hearts? We can't focus on how how worthy he is, how awesome he is, and what he's done for us. And so I just want to encourage you, invite you with me this, this next week, this morning, to pray along with me and ask God, to beg God to give us hearts for his glory, to give us hearts that, that beat for his heart, to give us hearts that are content to be fixated on him for maybe starting five minutes at a time, but eventually to where we could pray for 50 minutes and just focus on the Lord, that as concerned as we are for our own wants and needs, and we bring those to the Lord, that we would be even more concerned with God's desires and God's character, and God's nature, and his heart, and who he is, and that we would be overwhelmed by him in prayer. Because, number three, as we do that, as we reflect on who God is, it will naturally lead us, as it does with Nehemiah, to confession. That's number three. Our prayers ought to be confessionary. Nehemiah's prayer is actually a confession in two separate ways. First, there's Nehemiah's explicit confession in verses the second half of verse 6 and and then verse 7. He says, now I pray, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, not kept the commandments. Two quick things I want to point out about that. First, there's a corporate dimension to to prayer and to confession, the sins of the people of Israel. And we almost always miss that today in our individualized modern-day Uh, world, but in the Bible, both sin and faith have thoroughly corporate dimensions. God says, if my people, plural, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways, plural, then I will hear them, plural, and will forgive their sin, plural, and heal their land, plural. God so loved the world, plural, that he gave his only son, right? And that deserves a whole nother Sermon on the corporate nature of sin and faith that we miss so often. But I just want to remind you of that this morning. When we pray, let's don't forget the corporate nature of sin and faith. But secondly, prayer is not just corporate. It doesn't stop there for Nehemiah. It's also personal. It's corporate, but it's personal. And so one of the first lessons that I had to learn as a preacher was preach less in the second person and more in the first person. I mean, Nehemiah doesn't say here, you sinners. He says, we, me and my house, we have acted very corruptly against you. And so, again, if, I, if I'm going to use this as a model, I hope that what you hear me saying this morning, because this is a high-challenge sermon. There's encouragement, there's challenge, Hopefully, you get some of both this morning. This is going to be high challenge, though, in terms of our prayer lives, but I hope you don't hear me saying you. I hope you hear me saying me, because I would just confess to you this morning that when it comes to most of this, I stink, and I get paid to do this. Stuff. I mean, I'm a pastor, and I stink at prayer. I would, rather, personally, I would rather sit down and read the Bible for an hour than pray for five minutes, I'm type A, I'm an INTJ personality, strategic thinker. Prayer often feels passive to me. It feels inefficient. It feels ineffective in, in light of God's sovereignty, um, squaring those two things. And I know that's bad theology. I know that I need to, to grow in those areas. But more than anything, it's just sin. It's really just sin. It's, it's me, you know, prayer is taking things to God and giving him control of them. And I'm a control freak, so I don't do that. And I need to confess that, and I need to ask God for a heart like Nehemiah's, for prayer. That prayer would be my natural default first response. And Nehemiah's prayer is actually confessionary in in a second sense, too, that goes even deeper. That's really interesting that we could miss if we don't know Scripture very well. So in verse 6, at the first part, he starts by asking God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open." to hear the prayer of your servant. What Nehemiah is actually saying and acknowledging there is what David acknowledges in Psalm 8 when he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Nehemiah is acknowledging, God, I don't deserve for you to to be listening to me right now. I don't deserve for you to, to spare a thought for me. But Nehemiah goes even beyond that, I think, and he recognizes a very biblical, because it's tied with his confession, I think Nehemiah recognizes a very biblical truth that God does not listen to the prayers of the unrighteous. Now that sounds heretical, but let me show it to you in Scripture. God does not listen to the prayers of the unrighteous. John nine thirty-one. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Pretty clear. Proverbs twenty-eight, nine. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. In 1 Peter 3, 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So when Nehemiah prays, God, would you open your ears? Would you open your eyes? I think Nehemiah is actually admitting, God, we've sinned. We have screwed up. We are sinners, and we do not deserve for you to be listening to me and to us, the nation of Israel, right now. But God, I deserve for you to ignore me, if not outright condemn me, but would you in your mercy hear my plea? And so, friends, this morning, when we recognize that, this is, this is the most mind-blowing, radical thing about Prayer. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. This is the most radical thing about New Testament prayer. Is that when we pray, we no longer have to approach God with that same sense of fear and insecurity that we hear in Nehemiah's prayer here. Because our standing with the Father is no longer dictated by our good works and our obedience and our faithfulness to the covenant, but by Jesus's obedient, faithful work on the cross, dying our death that we deserve in our place, trading his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And our hope and our standing with God and our relationship with him and the communication line, the, the, the prayer line is always open because of what Jesus did for us. That is the good news. And we don't, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to talk to God. But Hebrews 4.16 says, we can now approach the throne of grace with boldness, but we need to remember the price of that boldness. This, brothers and sisters, this is why we pray in Jesus' name. When we say in Jesus' name, that is not a magic sign-off tagline to try and get God to grant our wishes in Jesus' name as a reminder to us of the price that it costs for us to even approach the throne of grace in the first place. When we pray in Jesus' name, may we never let those words roll off our tongues in prayer lightly ever again. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are reminding ourselves of the cost of opening up that line of communication with the Father our perfect mediator, connecting a perfect holy God with a sinful fallen me, our mediator. In Jesus' name, thank you, Jesus. And that's number four. That's our fourth characteristic is that prayer should be thankful. When we realize that, thankful, thankful, Responsive, adoring, confessionary, and thankful. What is Nehemiah? Look at what Nehemiah prays in verses eight through ten with me, and, and, and I'm going to reread it. And I want you to listen for what is Nehemiah really praying here. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, "If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep from keep my commandments and do them, though you are you are outcast." in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What is Nehemiah really doing there? Anybody know the Old Testament well enough to know what he's doing there? What is it? He's reviewing history and specifically, he is praying scripture back to God. These, I'm gonna show you this what he prays comes almost word for word out of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, if you are not careful, this is God's promise to Moses in in the Mosaic Covenant. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, then the Lord will scatter you amongst all the people from one end of the earth to the other. Then Deuteronomy 30, the flip side of that promise, return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I commanded you today. Then... If you're outcast or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there He will take you. Deuteronomy 12. Go to the place that the Lord your God will choose and make His name dwell there. Deuteronomy 9. For they are your people, your heritage, from whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Does that sound familiar? That is verbatim what Nehemiah is praying here. He is praying the promises of God back to God. Why? because God needs to remember this? Because God has forgotten his covenant promises? No, because Nehemiah has. Because Israel has. God's word to Moses 1,000 years before this, in 1500 BC, has accurately predicted their current present situation. Scattered amongst the peoples, out uttermost parts, a thousand miles from Jerusalem, the, the uttermost known parts of the world at that time, but Nehemiah is finally now just piecing it all together. Oh, that's what Deuteronomy is about. And so what does he do? What is Nehemiah? What's his response? He remembers that first half, God's going to judge us, but then the second half. He remembers the other half of God 's promises. God gives his curses for when the people disobey Him but his blessings if they will turn back to him in repentance. That's, that's Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Go back and reread it. And so Nehemiah remembers and he prays those blessings. He, he, he claims those, those promises of God in prayer gratefully, boldly, and gratefully. God, I know this is the kind of God you are, a covenant-keeping God who follows through on your promises, Would you follow through on this promise? Would you give us a heart to turn back to you so that you can bless us in the way that you said you will? And so, make no mistake, even though Nehemiah doesn't say the words, thank you, this is a prayer of thanksgiving. And so, the question for us this morning, a couple questions actually, the first is, are our prayers thankful? Um, most of us do not need to be reminded to ask God for things. We do that pretty naturally when we pray. The question, again, is are we naturally grateful for all the things he already has provided? If we had some sort of a scale and we could weigh how much time in our prayer we spend asking for versus how much time we spend thanking for, what would the scale look like? And, and secondly, what are we thankful for? Look at Nehemiah's prayer and what he's actually thankful for here. Listen, every single good gift we know from James comes from the Father above, and it is undeserved. We don't deserve any of the blessings of this life. And so that I, I thank God every day for my wife and my Child and my family and my friends and this church and my job and my house. I mean, God has again, richly, abundantly blessed me and probably you, definitely you, above and beyond what we deserve. And so it's good to be thankful for that. But if we took that same scale again and we weighed and stacked up our gratitude for those earthly, physical, material, in this world, blessings, if we weighed that against God's eternal, spiritual blessings, the hope of eternal life, the joy of knowing him, the peace of being set free of our sins, the unconditional love of Christ, if we weighed those things, what would the scale look like? That's my question for us this morning. When my mom gave Ellery, Um, her Power Wheels Barbie Jeep for Christmas this past year. She was so distracted and overjoyed by the awesome huge box that it came in that we almost had to like hide it so that she could get excited about the Jeep. And I wonder sometimes, is that how God thinks about our prayers? Like even when we do thank him, I'm so, I'm, I'm actually very quick to, to thank God for my wife and for my child and f- for all these things. How quick are we to see the jeep? Like, I, I, I'm I'm glad you appreciate the box. What about the jeep? What about eternal life? What about salvation from hell? I mean, wh- you know, these are the things that that Colossians three says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. And I ask you to consider with me this morning, if the blessings of this world are so amazing and so wonderful, do we realize that they're shadows of the things to come? I want to set my mind on the spiritual blessings. I want to fix my heart on the the things of God, the things of heaven. I want to express my gratitude for that in every prayer, regularly. I I want to be like Nehemiah and remind myself of God's promises and cultivate a heart of gratitude and a trust in him. But here's the thing. You can only do that, you can only be like Nehemiah and thank God for his promises and thank God for who he is, a covenant-keeping God. You can only do that if you know his promises. Right? You can only pray God's promises back to him in Scripture if you know them. That's why we internalize the word. We don't just read it and study it. We don't just come on Sunday mornings to hear about it. We internalize it. I've got to know Romans eight twenty eight that he's working all things together for my good. I've got to know Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in me will see it through to completion. I've got to know Deuteronomy thirty one six and, and Matthew 28.20, that he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me, and lo, he is with me to the end of the age. I've got to know Psalm 23.4, that even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I can fear no evil because the Lord is with me. I've got to know Philippians 4.19, that God has promised to, to meet all my uh, needs with his riches and glory i 've got to know Romans 10:9 that if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from his dead in my heart, from the dead in my heart, that I will be saved i 've got to know these things i 've got to know the promises of God so I can boldly proclaim them and cling to them and thank God for them regularly i 've got to internalize those. Are we thankful like Nehemiah for God's amazing undeserved promises for our good? And lastly, number five, prayer should be supplicatory. It's just a fancy adjective word for supplication, which is a fancy word for a humble prayer of petition. A humble prayer of petition. It's not just okay to ask God for things. God actually commands it. Philippians four six let your request be made known to God matthew seven seven through eleven ask and it will be given to you God commands us to ask him for things it's his good pleasure it's the father's good pleasure to give us these things but notice when nehemiah notice what he requests of God specifically look at his prayer in verse eleven what does he ask God for he asked father give success in, to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He doesn't pray for his own advancement. Actually, Nehemiah is asking God to give him a major pay cut and go from being the right-hand man to the most powerful guy on earth to being the project manager of the most unpopular building project on earth. I mean, he, he's asking to be to be taunted and to be have stuff thrown at him and his life threatened for the next however many months that he's, building this wall that no one else wants. That's what he's at. He doesn't even, and he doesn't even ask for um, the well-being of the people. The Jews will be blessed for this wall. That's not the focus of his prayer. The focus of his prayer is that God would help him to be successful in the pursuit that God has put on his heart to build a wall to protect God's chosen city and to advance God's kingdom and God's purposes on the earth in the way that God has promised from long ago because God said, I want to dwell with my people in Zion, in Jerusalem. It's about God. For Nehemiah, this is about God's vision. And so I ask us this morning as we close, what is your wall? What is the thing that God has put on your heart partner with him in seeing God's kingdom advanced on this earth. I ask us collectively as a church, corporately, what is our wall? What is the vision that God has put on our hearts as a church? What is our part to play in advancing his kingdom on earth? And how faithfully are we praying for success in that endeavor? We petition God for all sorts of things for promotion at work, for financial help, for guidance with raising the kids, for protection and health, for our family, for, again, uh, friends, illness. I mean, we pray for all sorts of things. And that's good. God tells us to. But in all of our asking for things, are we faithful to ask God to do in us and through us the one thing that we know is always in accordance with his will, like we always qualify these other things like, if it's your will, if it's your will. This is the one thing we never have to qualify because we know biblically, it is a promise that this is according to God's will. In the Old Testament, God reigned over his people from a seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, inside the temple, inside the city of Jerusalem. That's why protecting the city of Jerusalem was important for Nehemiah, And he can pray that God would help him do that to advance God's kingdom on earth. Where does God reign from today? The hearts of believers. That means if we are to pray like Nehemiah for the advancement of God's kingdom on earth today, we don't build city walls. We pray for hearts evangelism and discipleship because we know biblically promises God wants to reign in more hearts and God wants to reign more in hearts evangelism and discipleship those are the two things that we can always pray that God would move and motivate and open doors and help us to be a part of and we know biblically that he's going to because he wants to that is his good will and purpose for this world It may be God's will for you to take that other job. It may not. It may be God's will for you to have more kids. It may not. Pray for those things. It is always, though, God's will to spread the good news and to spread the good news deeper in the hearts of the people who have already received it. And so those are prayers and promises that we can take to the bank. And so I want to actually close before we take communion by giving us just a moment, just a, f- a few moments to pray together and to ask God to give us hearts to pray like, like he would have us to pray, responsively, adoringly, in confession, in thanksgiving, in supplication. So would you bow with me as the ushers prepare communion? And let's pray. Father, you call us to pray responsively. We've been all over the place this morning in your word, and so I just want to give a a moment for hearts this morning to respond as you, Holy Spirit, would convict and challenge and encourage and embolden their hearts. Father, would you respond in our hearts right now in your own way? you call us to pray prayers of adoration would you give us a heart this morning for your glory and your goodness as we pray thank you for who you are to pray prayers of confession. We confess this morning that we have not prayed as we ought, and we need a model. We need instruction. We need growth, and so we pray that you would do that this morning, and we confess. just who you are, but what you've done and the promises that you've made to continue to do and to keep and to hold those that you have called to yourself. We thank you for your promises. And lastly, God, we pray prayers of supplication. You've already promised to supply our every need. But Father, We want to pray specifically this morning, like Nehemiah, that you would use us in powerful ways, maybe even small ways, whatever way you see fit to advance your kingdom here on earth, that you would give us success in this endeavor, that we would be bold to proclaim your gospel to the ends of the earth and to make disciples of all nations, the calling that you've left us with. We ask you for this. us good gifts. Father, may we be a people who recognize the gift of prayer for what it is. Never take it lightly. Make every use take full advantage of the gift of prayer. To come boldly before your throne of grace. We love you, Father. We thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name.